the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. We sometimes make prayer unnecessarily complicated. Uh, in the biggest picture, prayer is as simple as uh, walking with God, being mindful of God, speaking to God, reflecting on God. Uh, in the more narrow task of what we do when we pray, the, the thing that's probably most natural to most of us is to ask God for things. And that's okay. Jesus tells us to be persistent in coming to God. Jesus tells us to call God Father. So in the same way that a four-year-old asking their parents for things is not doing anything wrong yeah, in its own, uh, but that's appropriate. So, it, so it's also appropriate for us to be asking God for things, especially things that we cannot attain on our own. Of course, as we mature, we realize prayer is more than just asking God for things. Um, but somehow we wind up feeling like prayer is a, a to-do list, a checklist, it's something we have to do. Uh, prayer, rather than being a place of, of rest, of strengthening, of renewal, of refreshment, of thinking through things, sometimes can become a place of guilt or discouragement for Christians. And so today as we look at how Paul tells the Ephesians he's praying for them, first notice the big picture, which is uh, his prayer flows out of his theology he says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the God of heaven, uh, giving thanks. There's a, there's a number of things that are happening as he prays that seems to flow out of a life with God. But he tells them that he's asking for specific things for them. So Paul is not ashamed to say, I, I come before God on your behalf, asking God to give you things. And in particular, I want God to give you things that come with the spirit that he's given you, but things that you do not have on your own, that you cannot attain in the same way unless God, in his kindness, gives them to you. What does he pray for? That's what I want to talk about today. It, the primary thing is he prays for power, but that power is connected to knowledge that he also hopes God will give them, that is connected to love that he hopes God will give them. So I'm going to talk about those three things, power, knowledge, and love. So we're going to begin with power. That seems to be the heart of what he's asking for. Uh, verses 16 and 17, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the life of faith how we rest in God, trust in God, um, the, the spirit opening our eyes, we need to be strengthened. We need power. And, and Paul's assumption, along with the assumption of the Bible, is that there's an, an inherent weakness in human beings. 
So if you stay within the language of Ephesians, Paul has said things like you're dead. It's like you're dead in your trespasses. Your hearts are hard, or that's at least they were. You're alienated from the life of God. He gives this picture of human beings in a somewhat desperate situation where we need rescuing, we need help, we need kindness, we need favor. And Paul is so excited because he's saying that's the nature of God. God is kind and gracious and has given you these things. And now we're going to appeal to him so that this change really uh, works its way out more thoroughly in your life so that you grow stronger, so that God's power is at work in you. And therefore, faith in Christ is not meant to leave us weak or to make us weak. It's actually meant to strengthen us. Now, this is a little bit confusing because on the one hand, the Bible has a number of passages where it talks about boasting in weakness, for example. And the impression that you get is that Christianity encourages us to be weak. What's unique about Christianity is not that God loves weakness, but that God loves the weak, that you have a powerful being that doesn't arrogantly look down on those who lack power. But his goal is not to leave people powerless. His goal is to actually um, provide a, a kind of strength that then Jesus comes in his teaching and challenges the ways that we think of power in, the, in how the world conceives of it and pursues it and calls us to a radically different way. So it actually feels like we're getting weaker because we're disconnecting from the forms of power that people are running after. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is, if you trust me, you'll find that I, you, I'm not making you weaker, I'm actually making you stronger. And so the goal of Christianity is not to make you weak, it's actually to, to get you disconnected from the powers that are weakening you or where you may be excelling at the expense of others and weakening them. Uh, the vision is for true power, something at work in you that produces a different kind of life. I think this dynamic is one of the reasons that the Lord of the Rings books captures the imagination of so many people, because in the heart of this narrative uh, is this quest for power or, or dealing with the dynamics of power. So you have this evil figure, Sauron, who creates this ring, and the ring is found uh, by the the good people in the passage and what do they do with it? Well, you would think they would take that power and wield it against the one who owns it, but, but instead what embedded in the story is you don't try to take the power of the ring, the ring and use it for your own benefit. That's the very temptation that comes with it. What you need to do is to destroy the ring. <laughs> um, and that picture, I think it has inspired the imagination of a lot of people to realize uh, you know, so much of what we're doing in, in this world is, is, is buy-in on a certain number of assumptions that we just feel like that's, those are the resources we have. And Jesus comes and says, there's a whole different way of living, and it's going to make you feel like you're getting weaker, it's going to make you look weaker, but actually, in the long run, you're actually uh, aligning with what will bring you greater power. And so Jesus comes to First John says, destroy the works of the devil. He doesn't come to reclaim them. He comes to, uh, to replace uh, the corruption. And so when, when you think of, of uh, the different forms of power in different places, different seasons of life, certain expressions of power um, are more appealing or, or seem more striking for teenagers, uh, sometimes physical violence, being able to fight, feels like uh, a, particular, a particularly attractive form of power. If you could beat someone up, well, then that helps you deal with your insecurities. It, it helps you in, in whatever uh, way that you're thinking. And so therefore, in the teenage years, that seems like a superior form of power. If you could learn to fight. Now, because there are people in the world that think that way, um, learning self-defense, learning to fight is appropriate for all people. 
But you know, once you're in your 30s and 40s, your ability to fight, um, most of us, there are economic power. Um, yes, being able to fight will help you if you're gonna mug somebody in the park, but that's not really gonna give you real financial growth and stability. Uh, the ability to fight is a form of power and at a certain stage or in certain context, it's maybe a particularly effective one. But uh, in terms of real power, it's, it's kind of inferior. So if we were to take every living American president from Jimmy Carter to Biden and uh, bring them in this room and, uh, and randomly go out and get a bunch of teenagers from the neighborhood and have a fight, who would you put your money on? Would it be George W? Uh, would it be Clinton or would it be the unnamed teenager in the neighborhood? Well, most of us, if it was a fist fight, would put our money not on the presidents of the United States, but who's more powerful? And so here's the thing is Biden doesn't want to get into a fist fight with you, but you can try, but you won't be fighting him. You'll be fighting the Secret Service. And so there is physical strength at, at his uh, 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 available to him. But he has far more power than just being able to throw a punch in, in, a, uh, in that kind of context. And so we know that, that each of us has some sort of sense of, if I, could, if I could grow here, this will give me advantage, it will give me confidence, it will give me power. And Jesus comes and says, you're, you're likely grasping after the wrong thing. So he, he warns about money having a power in itself. Yes, it's effective in the world, but be careful. It, it will take over and consume you. Um, violence, arrogance, status, all of the things that, that strike the average person is if I could attain those things, I will be a more powerful person. Jesus would say, you're potentially a more dangerous person. You're a more vulnerable person, but I'm not sure yet you're a more powerful person unless the spirit of God is doing something deeper and more profound in your life. And so, as we talk about the nature of power in this passage, uh, just as a reminder that, that the call to follow Jesus requires trusting him, and therefore there's a vulnerability where it feels like he's asking you to become weaker, um, but he's actually intending to make you stronger. And therefore, um, you will find that sometimes following Christ means putting away the things that you've learned to incorporate into your life to give you the edge that actually the mockery and putting down of other people that sort of make you feel a little bit stronger in that situation and get people on your side, you realize, I, I can't depend on that. Or the ability to spin things and maybe not be direct, directly truthful is a way of wielding a power over somebody. And, and there's a vulnerability to, to just practicing plainly speaking the truth. Uh, or to not walking into a room and, and thinking, I need to take the room by how I look. But actually, um, let me not put so much time and energy into that being my strength, my edge. Uh, if that's what you're used to, to not do those kinds of things from period makes you feel weaker. But Jesus says part of the Christian life is handing over the ways that you've been doing things, your practices and trying new things and finding out that, that within that there may be a greater strength, a greater effectiveness, a greater power, greater integrity that comes with that. So a child that uh, is riding a bike and has training wheels, when you take the wheels off, they have not gotten worse at biking, but they have gotten more vulnerable. It's a scarier moment. It's a harder moment, but it's an essential moment. You are not going to want to compete in a Tour de France with the training wheels on. 
to get better requires what appears as a as a step towards weakness, but it's actually not. Once you've gotten the skills that they could come off, then you're gonna wobble a bit, but stick with it. You'll find that you're better off than being bound by the training wheels. Jesus is saying humanity is bound in terms of these ideals, uh, these concepts, the things that everyone instinctively runs after. And Jesus is saying, I wanna grow you to the place where we could take that off. And then you go forward and find that actually you're in a better place. And so what do we need? We need knowledge. We need understanding we need learning so that's the second thing i want to talk about is he paul prays that they would have uh, that they would be strengthened with power and that strength is in order to know things and so uh, i think it was francis bacon who says knowledge is power or maybe first said that um, and there's truth to that but be, as power hungry people as soon as we hear that rather than thinking oh the way to help a weak community is through education by empowering them our thought is if knowledge is power, I need to master information so I could be the most powerful. And then we perpetuate this issue. Um, clearly, knowledge is important. Knowledge is powerful, but, but it's something that's moving us in, in the discipleship life. We're meant to be learners, studiers, thinkers, but there's more to it than that. So in verse 18, he prays that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And so there's a comprehension that they don't yet have. And it's almost as if what Paul is saying is, um, you need to be strengthened before you can comprehend. God needs to do a work of, of restoring you because you are not yet prepared to understand. And we know that learning works that way, that there are building blocks to learning. So you don't wanna offer AP calculus to a first grade class. They're not ready for it, they're human beings, but but they haven't yet gotten strong enough mentally. They don't have the building blocks to be able to, to deal with the more complex advanced material. So uh, spiritually, there's a sense morally, um, there's a, a human weakness that we're not yet really even ready to understand what it is that gives us life, that makes life good and rich, that makes us productive. And therefore the prayer that they would be strengthened with power is so that they would have strength to comprehend. Uh, it's kind of like when somebody experiences something traumatic, it not only leaves you vulnerable, but confused. You now understand things in a skewed way. So part of getting things restored is getting clarity uh, so that your fear is not clouding things, for example. Um, human beings need a strength in order to comprehend. And what Paul is saying is that strength comes from the spirit. It's something God gives you. And as that work of healing and renewal is being done, then you start to understand. And so discipleship requires that vulnerability of stepping out, but it's a stepping out to watch, to learn, to grow. And so in the ways that we learn, if you're gonna go skiing for the first time, it would be smart to watch some YouTube videos and to read some books and to, to go in with a plan of, of how do things work? How do you stop on snow? Well, how do you use your balance? And so all of that prepares you but then when you get there, you find you're still not yet able to do it, even though now you, you have all the information, but, but the information hasn't worked itself into wisdom, into the ability to do it. Uh, so our knowledge, our information, we're, we're a very informed society, but in some ways it appears as though we're a, a weakening society. We should be praying for this kind of revelation, this kind of strengthening, uh, something in us that is helping us to comprehend to understand in ways, uh, to certainly understand the nature of strength and power, but to understand it even above and beyond that. So in verse 19, 
What do we need to know? Because that's what he's praying is about knowledge. Verse 19 says, uh, there's a prayer to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The problem of emptiness, we feel empty, we feel weak, we're longing and therefore we're desperate. Paul talks about a filling of the spirit that, that brings life to you. And when that happens, then you start to know something. But what's interesting is you know something that surpasses knowledge. And that's sort of a, an interesting thing. He's, now he has in view love, but love is something you need to know. So, so strength is needed to know, knowledge is needed to connect with God's love. But he's talking about something that surpasses what we could even comprehend. There's something far more wonderful than what we would think or imagine. And so when we think of our own prayer lives, if you think of it as the list of, okay, this is what I need to do because this is what God requires or this is how God works. And so this is how I'll get things done. We miss out that, that prayer itself can be a place of learning, of knowing. So certainly prayerful reading in the Bible is, is, a, is an important discipline. You could read the Bible without praying and learn all sorts of information, um, but you may grow in arrogance. It's the prayerful listening to God that actually uh, not simply fills your minds with the facts, but, but, but helps you to come to know the person. But it's not just Bible reading. Sometimes it's the, it's the very questions you have in life that you're not necessarily working out in the presence of God. So that taking that time to pray, to sit, and to say, Lord, I don't understand, or I have a very important decision to make, or, or here's what's going on in the world and I'm trying to take it in, or whatever it is, where you sit down and in your prayer, you're, you're asking God, but, but you're also thinking. And so therefore you're trying to figure out what decision to make. And in that praying and that asking and that listening and that grappling, you're drawing on your theology, you're drawing on your learning, you're drawing on your life experience, but you're doing it with an awareness that God is present by his spirit and he's watching over you and leading you. And then prayer becomes less of, here's the task I have to do, I have to pray before I go to work. But when I'm going to work, I'm gonna face this difficult thing. So I better sit down and say, Lord, help me to understand what to do in this situation. And then prayer becomes the ordinary part of the Christian life. But with that comes learning, comprehension, knowledge, because then you're in the context where what the spirit is doing in your life of training you to think and putting things together, of molding you, of sanctifying you, that uh, that's where you're growing. And so we need power, we need knowledge, but here's the third thing that I wanna talk about. Where this is going is ultimately towards the love of God that we're, we're too weakened to really um, to, to take it in, to even understand what's being talked about. But Paul seems to indicate if you really grasp this, it will strengthen you, it will change you, it will renew you, it will be life-giving. And so he prays for it. He prays that they would be strengthened with power. He prayed that, prays that they would have comprehension to know what surpasses knowledge but it's to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that's deeper, more profound, wider, longer, larger. Uh, so he prays that God would make himself known so they would have access to these things. So in verses 17 and 18, his prayer is, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, that's the first thing I said, to comprehend, and that's the second thing, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what? In the context, it's clear, the love of God. You'd rooted and grounded in this love, so you'd have strength to comprehend just how vast God's love is. 
and uh, even the topic of love in the church. Um, we, we have these, whatever connotation you have of what love is, um, for some of you, it, it could actually be somewhat negative. For most people, it's positive. Love is a good thing, but maybe love feels insufficient. You don't understand the breadth and the depth of it. For some, love could feel a little bit pathetic, where uh, it sounds like something that, that you put in a different category. And therefore, to understand what the Bible is talking about with love, it's a love that's connected with power. So love that's collected, connected with knowledge. So, for example, you may have the impression there was a, a song that Celine Dion made popular, The Power of Love, and I am your lady and you are my man. That's what some of us think of. Oh, that's the context for talking about love. Love is powerful. And, you know, it actually is in that context for what, 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 a, what human beings who love one another can do, the sacrifices they make for one another, certainly profound. But that romantic vision of love uh, some of you have gotten cynical enough to say, you know, there's always this infatuation point where there's this feeling of power because I'm obsessed with this person, but it always wears off. And therefore, love's not a real thing. Uh, the love that, that is in view here is not the romantic infatuation that, that has the power to make you do absurd things, but then wears off. It's actually a power that has you do even brave and courageous things. And so the, the picture of, of, of the, the moment where God's love is most clearly expressed in the Bible is when Jesus is crucified. Uh, so the Bible doesn't shy away from a romantic imagery about marriage being a picture of the relationship of God and his people. But how do we know that God loves us? The picture is not with flowers and chocolates, but the picture is with a violent encounter. And that's we're told that's how we get a window into something of the depth and the breadth and the length and the height of the love of God. And so the Roman Empire, for example, had the symbol of the cross that now we all associate presumably with Christianity, but prior to Jesus dying on the cross, it was just associated with empire and torture. And it was a message to say, don't mess with us. Because if you do, we have the power to take from you uh, the very things that, that you want, your dignity, your comfort, your life. And so, so the cross is a picture of how we can humiliate you. Uh, you know, when Jesus was crucified, it, it, it seemed somewhat natural that everybody around him was hurling insults at him, laughing at him. It's kind of a strange thing to think of there's somebody like suffering on the cross and we're going to gather to laugh, but it shows the nature of the, corrupt, the corruption of, of humanity. And so, uh, so the cross was to strip somebody of their dignity. We're just going to take off your clothes. We're going to nail you there and portray you utterly helpless and weak. And you're going to know it because we're going to laugh at you. That's a sign that we think that you're pathetic. And in terms of comfort, how much of us make so many decisions on just wanting to feel good and to be happy? And, and with crucifixion, it wasn't simply that your, your skin and your bones were pierced, but, uh, but as studies have been done on what it was like to actually hang on the cross, that you're unable to breathe and over, over the hours of just how your body getting extended, it's utter misery. And the cross is a message to say, we could take your comfort. Um, and then even your life, you don't survive the cross. You don't, you don't spend hours on the cross and then go back to work the next day. That's, that's the end. And so the message is, uh, we have power over you and we could take your dignity. We could take your comfort. We could take your life. <clears throat> the Christian story is yet Jesus comes. And so why does he come? And there's, there's numerous explanations. One would be to glorify the father, but what's communicated to us is because the father 
wanted to love us. And so he sends the son and the son in love comes. And what does he do? Um, does he think nothing of dignity? No, he calls us to dignity, but he's willing to undergo that harassment, that humiliation, that mockery, to put himself out there and be laughed at. And is, is comfort no big thing? Certainly, as a human being, Jesus would have preferred a warm bath to being beaten up. Uh, but he goes to the cross because he's not afraid. He's not overwhelmed because there's a power at work in him. And even his very life. It's this interesting thing. Does, does the Roman Empire have the ability to take the life of Jesus? And the answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, they did. He was a human being. They crucified him. He breathed his last. But when you get the sense of who was really in charge of this situation, they had the power to take his life and that they could kill him. But clearly they didn't have the power to take his life because he's alive today. He, he rises from the grave eternally. They're able to take his life, but not to take it to possess it. Um, the real power was not that they could take his life, but that Jesus could give his life. And this is what we find in that violent encounter. Jesus is coming, renouncing whatever the world would have done in that situation and doing something completely different to show, if you want to know with clarity what true power looks like, look to God who in love has done this for people who didn't ask for it, who didn't deserve it, but who receive of his grace. And so uh, this power to say God has loved you with that kind of love, yes, it's a love of longing and delight. Yes, it's a, a love of gift giving. Yes, it's a love of spending time with you, but it's also a love that's courageous, that's profound, that is greater than whatever powers would otherwise come against us. And therefore there's a security that through the gospel, you come to Christ because of God's kind invitation by his mercy. It's by his power and strength, not by yours. And he invites you and you come by faith. And once we know that, once, once we have a window into seeing that, we start to, to look out at the world and realize that we've conceived of it wrongly. We've run after the wrong things. We've been left weak, discouraged, helpless. But if we understand the height and the depth and the breadth, uh, the width of the love of God, then we are in tune with something more powerful um, that we just don't otherwise see. If you, if you were to go to uh, a great event, one of these fundraisers or something in the city, and you, and you walk into a, a nice big ballroom on Park Avenue, and the first thing you notice is that there's music, you hear a string quartet, and you go in and, and there they are and you see them. And there's this huge, beautiful crystal chandelier, that uh, uh, this beautiful glass, certainly valuable, and there's the smell of this wonderful food, and there's all these well-dressed people. Um, and so you come back and you report to somebody, what a great event. Oh, you were at that event over there on Park Avenue. What did you think of the carpet? And your answer might be, I, I don't know. I didn't even notice the carpet. That's where the person could say, you were in the room for how, three hours and you didn't, you didn't notice anything, you know, that beautiful carpet that, you know, there's photographs of it, you know, on this very famous valuable, you were there and didn't even notice it. Well, I didn't notice the music. I noticed the, the hors d'oeuvres. I noticed they were out of ice at one bar, so I went to the other, but I noticed all sorts of other things. But the carpet, well, weren't you standing on it? You were standing on the carpet, you didn't notice it? And, and, and that's life in this world. The, the claim is God's love is there. <laughs> and do we see it? Well, we see all sorts of things, but do we see the presence of the love of God? And part of that invitation is, yeah, woven into the fabric of re reality, everything is bearing witness to God and his goodness, but we just don't see it. But the Christian is called to stand, 
to stand on that gospel, to stand on that grace. And yet sometimes we're standing in Christ, but we're looking out in the world, uh, remaining weak and not seeing. And the picture here is that the spirit can grow you, to change you, so that the one that you're standing in, the one who gave himself for you, becomes the life-giving source so that you start to see as you look around that actually God's love is so vast and broad and wide that it's everywhere. And it's remarkable if you think about it. Paul doesn't pray, God, please love these people. And our prayer is not to be, Lord, please love me. Paul says, God already does love you. My prayer is that you would see it. And that's the issue. We don't comprehend it. We don't understand it because we've gotten bogged down in these ways of thinking that leave us stuck. And the picture here is God did this for you. God sent Jesus Christ into this. Jesus went willingly. So trust him, root yourself in him, and then pray for the strength to see the reality of God's mercy and kindness, because that will give you strength. That will give you the ability to go back out into this harsh world and be different. And so here's a couple of things. Um, one is just that. Do you know that God loves you? Uh, we look within ourselves because that's what we do. What is it about me that shows that I'm worthy? And Jesus says, don't look within, look without, look at me. And when you see what I've done for you, then you'll believe my words when I say I have loved you. So now have that be your starting point. Um, second thing, uh, and actually, did I read? I think I did read verses 17 and 18. You're being rooted and grounded in love. I want to make sure that you understand what my point is rooted and grounded in. Uh, so now I'm going to read verse 20. Um, part of the Christian life is to recognize, yeah, we remain in this state of, of having advanced, having the training wheels taken off, if you want to use that, but, but still being weak and vulnerable. We're not powerful. We don't see God's love everywhere. And that's what's encouraging of this life of prayer, this life of faith, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Um, experiencing God's work in our life doesn't depend on our needing to know in every occasion what to ask for. It's getting to the point where you realize, I actually no longer know. <laughs> what to ask for. So Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to pray more generally. So I've got a specific thing. I'm anxious about this, but I have a general thing. Lord, I'm just going to trust you as this works itself out. So I'm going to pray for strength, for wisdom, protection, provision. But often in the Christian life, you have to say, I don't know what to think. And so Lord, my hope is that there is something abundantly more than all I could ask or all that I currently think and understand. And that's the promise, that's the strengthening, which is if you're following Christ, there is far more that you do not yet know, far more good things. So be strengthened by the spirit, walk with God and be a learner, be a disciple. And you will know more in the future than you know now, but you will not know all that you need, but God does know, and so you can trust him. And here's the last thing, just in this Ephesians series, one of the things we're noting is that Paul is writing to the church so that the church would be strengthened. He's saying, look, if you've been joined with Christ, you're joined together. And now as you're growing in Christ, you should be growing together. And so verse 18, Paul prays that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is a project we're working on together. 
We need to be talking about what God is doing in our lives. We need to be asking for prayer. We need to be trusting that in the Christian community as we're working out our questions that, that it's not simply that God will answer us in, in the quiet of prayer, but God will answer us through the prayerful discussions of our community. And so verse 21 says to him, the one who has strength, power, glory, the one who loves so richly to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And that's the point, this glory comes in the church. And so the church is a worshiping community, a church that comes together and says, Lord, you've loved us. So we're gonna give thanks. Lord, we're gonna to seek to return this and, and, and pray that the spirit would give us an increasing love for you. As we do that together, we're told that we're also supposed to leave and then love one another in the way that God has loved us. Um, Jesus says that anybody shows kindness to people that are kind to them. That's just the way the world works. But can you love even the people that aren't deserving it. That's how you know God's love is deep and broad and rich. We didn't deserve it, yet he loved us. When that love comes into our lives, then we could go back into the world and be more like God with a certain kind of strength. And so the church needs to assemble to remember the glory of God, to remember the grace, to remember the breadth, to remember just how deep and profound it is. And rooted, grounded in that, we then go back into the world, taking that knowledge, working it out, applying it, loving others as God has loved us. So that's the kindness of God who is given to us by the spirit. It's something to pursue. And so if you don't have it enough, pray for it. Let me pray for us. Father, we're here again in weakness. We come um, knowing some things, but not knowing all things. And so we bring into this room with us our fears and our frustrations and our anger and hostility and also the guilt for all of the ways that we've mishandled all that you've entrusted to us. And yet you are merciful. Your love is great and deep. And Lord, may none of us leave here today without knowing with greater depth something of this profound love that's real, but we just don't always connect with. Lord, do that work of grace to change our hearts and minds so that not only would we be strengthened, but that we would use our strength uh, to love others with that love so that um, so long as you give us days in this world, the church would indeed shine forth your glory. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.